Uncuff me now! Uncuff me! Is this really what it takes these days? Sorry. If I want to try and make things more exciting. You haven't touched me in months. No interest whatsoever until I say I'll let you play some sex game and it's turning into a, a rape fantasy that I never knew you had. Just please just un unlock these. Just, just uncuff me and we can talk. What if I won't? Welcome to Now Playing's review of Gerald's Game. This is good, you'll like this. Part of the Stephen King movie retrospective series. <laughs> Who could possibly hear you scream? Except Cujo over there. Hosted by Arnie. You're not real. You're only made of moonlight. Stuart. He was definitely a bad dream. And Jacob. He was a trick of the mind, just like you, Gerald. This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Isn't this why we came up here? Spice things up and try and push some boundaries? Listener discretion is advised. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Today we're discussing Gerald's Game, starring Carla Gugino, Bruce Greenwood, directed by Mike Flanagan. This is Arnie, the now-playing co-host with a burgeoning drinking problem. And Stuart. And this is the co-host is here to spice things up and try and push the boundaries, Jacob. Here we are at a film I never thought we'd be discussing. I read Gerald's Game when it was a brand new book. I remember the hype for it, that it was going to be King's first overt crossover. He had two books coming out in short succession, both very short books for him, under 400 pages each. Gerald's Game and Dolores Claiborne, these two stories were somehow going to cross over. Oh, really? I was very interested in that and knew King. And so when this book came out in 1992, I just tore into it. And, you know, 1992, I was 17 years old. I was also like, oh, S&M. That's naughty. So reading about that was a little interesting for me as well. But once I read it, I was like, well, this will never be a movie. You can't make this a movie. Yeah, I read that on Wikipedia that like people thought this was an unfilmable book. And no, this seems like a very filmable story. No, the whole thing is it's one woman on a bed the whole time. How do you make that a movie? Yeah, that's not a blockbuster, but that's an indie hit. Yeah, we've had several movies where people are confined to a limited space. I mean, we did a, a review of a guy driving a car for 90 minutes. Right. And, you know, what? James Franco got stuck in a cliff for 127 hours. Colin Farrell got stuck in a phone booth. They buried Ryan Reynolds for a while. Like, it happens. It, open water was, uh, you know, people left by their scuba team and... Fending off sharks and the open water, I, you know, it became a trend. Really, is it, Hitchcock is really the the first one to do it. Lifeboat, and it's a premise to tease whether you're a good enough director. Frankly, can you pull this off? You are on the lifeboat with Alfred Hitchcock, and that's it. There's nothing else coming for ninety minutes. And are you good enough to do that? It's a challenge. But if Hitch can do it, then it doesn't surprise me that a host of other people would attempt to do that as well. But my memory was the book was very much in keeping with the trends of the time. I mean, BDSM and all of that was like 
kind of a, happening at that point in 92. I mean, we had I mean a whole debate going on about should we fund art like Robert Maplethorpe and all of his gay erotica? There was the Madonna sex book. You know, she published a whole covered in mylar. You had to like spend $50 to open it and see her in all her kinky fantasies. You know, Basic Instinct, NC-17. My memory was it was a selling point that King was writing a story for adults about what I thought was the hardcore world of S&M. I did read the book for the first time last week. Surprisingly, once you get into it, it has very little to do with those kinds of fantasies. It's sort of just the kickoff to a survivalist story. And I would say not a positive look at it. We're kind of tugging at our collars, like what people pretend to show outrage when we all know what you guys are doing in your bedrooms. You're doing kinky stuff too. Well, I mean, it, it's a failed attempt. What you know becomes clear is this is a yuppie couple's fledgling attempt at doing what they've heard about on Skinamax. And it goes really bad, really, really fast. And the whole point is just to get a woman who has a whole sort of issues trapped in a single location. I really liked it. I just want to put it out there after complaining about all the weird sex and sleepwalkers last <laughs> week and all of that, like mom and son cat fucking, like I really had gotten to the point where I felt like I didn't want to see Stephen King pick up the pen again. But I thought it was a credible attempt to do what I've seen Poe and Lovecraft do, which is create an unreliable narrator and this constant shifting feeling. When you read that novel, you really don't know where you are. Like, even though we know she's confined on the bed, we move around so much, and there's so much that's ambiguous, you know, and shifting in time and all of that. I think what makes it unfilmable is not that it's going to show hardcore sex, but that what do you show when we can't be sure of, of what the person describing is actually literally happening? Well, yeah, that's part of it. I never thought it was unfilmable because... There's 10 pages of somebody being handcuffed to a bed. It was always because it's an entirely internal drama. And, you know, we mentioned the past couple shows. This is sober Stephen King. And I feel like Gerald's Game and Dolores Claiborne, I can't help but think of them as sibling novels, the way they were written, released, were his attempt at writing more adult stories. And they were both female-led. They were both stories about abuse. I was thinking about it. He'd only written three female-led stories before. Carrie, Firestarter, and Cujo. And Firestarter is, is very iffy, because for a lot of the film, it's her dad. But this is a chance, while keeping a little bit of horror, a little bit of scares and blood going on, it's like straddling the line between chiclet and horror. And so I think King was trying to stretch his writing muscles and challenge himself. Yeah, I mean, gothic writing, misery, you know, that kind of thing. I agree. It captures some of that feel. It did uh, have that quality. It felt more literary, and it felt different enough that, uh, yeah, I was actually, I would rank it one of the better King novels and sort of brought me back on board when I was really growing skeptical. The other thing I thought about, too, is, you know, when people get sober, they have to write apologies. You know, they have to make amends with the people that they've hurt in their life. I felt like in some way that King was trying to say mea culpa to Tabitha. You know, like it felt like by portraying the husband in this story as so monstrous, 
it really was an attempt on his part to see what being married to him when he was the monster alcoholic would have been like. He's much worse in the novel than, than in this movie. In fact, in this movie, I don't, we'll discuss it, I don't think he deserves to die. In the book, he is far worse. Right, yeah. He is a monster. He is one of the many monsters that has haunted the main character, just a different manifestation. And again, there's sort of this morphing, if you will, of like, what is the thing that's really trying to get her? Is it a dog? Is it this abusive relationship? Or is it her past? Or is it this monster in the corner? Yeah, I got so many questions about that, but we'll get there. (laughs) Right. So this made me happy that this week we were tackling a, a movie version of a book that I liked. I already mentioned that I feel like King tends to get better on screen than it is on the page, uh, or at least that's been my feelings about his big successes. With the exception of Salem's Lot, I typically like the movies more than I like the books. And so I'm hoping, with Mike Flanagan directing this, he did a really good job with Haunting of Hill House miniseries a few years back. And not such a good job with Dr. Sleep, which was his King adaptation after this one. No, he did a really good job with that. That was just happens to be Stephen King's very worst book. It's unsavable. <laughs> That's the unfilmable novel? Yeah, it ends up being a very mediocre movie, which I call a great success. It's bad, <laughs> but of course it is. It was about gypsies canning children and sucking them out with walrus tusks. I mean, like... Like that just that was always going to be awful. But I felt like he had the right sensibilities. He also made a, a little movie kind of on a similar premise about a deaf woman in a cabin in the woods being stalked by a man in a mask. Very minimalist. Not a lot of story. I felt like, oh, he pulled that one off. It was pretty tense. I got scared at a few parts. He proved that he could take a single location and exploit it. He's a Stephen King fan. He's a Kubrick fan. So, yeah, give him Gerald's game. You talk about going to the screen. I guess went to TV screens. Did Netflix make some deal with King? Because I know I've watched 1922, which is based on King, and The Tall Grass I haven't seen, but that's a Netflix original that's based on King. Did they do something like they did with Sandler where they like came up with some you know three-picture deal or something? No, it seems to be a one-by-one thing. It's just that King has been having a moment again, you know? I think he's as hot as he's been since the early 80s or early 90s after Misery. I don't feel like, speaking in terms of the novels, they're making much impact. He puts out a book every couple months, and I don't know that they're adapting any of those. But yeah, the classic works have some cachet, and we've talked about going back and seeing some of these remakes. Like next week, we get The Stand. Many people call that their favorite novel. So I almost feel like the reason why they made this one is because S&M is kind of having a moment too, right? Fifty Shades of Grey prove that there's a big mainstream audience that is willing to go to a movie theater to see the subject matter. Well, what was Stephen King's take on it? Yeah, but even before it, I mean, he did get Under the Dome, the TV series, and they've just constantly been making his stuff. And man, it scared me. I looked him up on IMDb for this show, just looking up something about him being a writer, and it shows upcoming projects 54 (laughs) We're never going to leave the Stephen King library. Yeah, but a lot of that will never come to be. There's a Cujo remake where it's C-U-J-O and the dog is robot. I I dare them. I dare (laughs) them. I want it. I want it, Stuart. Yeah, a, a lot of that stuff feels like wish fantasies that will not get made. 
I thought this was going to be a Cujo sequel or remake, the way it started. It definitely has elements of that, just in the sense that it's one of King's claustrophobic stories. You know, it's like someone, like in Cujo, they're just trapped in a pinto that broke down here, trapped in a bed. And and yeah, you're right. There's a dog in here, too. And they call him Cujo in the movie. Yeah, they even make that reference. Why don't we get into it, Arnie? Why don't you give him the plot and we can discuss Gerald's game? Gerald, played by Bruce Greenwood, and his wife Jessie, played by Carla Gugino, have gone to their lake house for a weekend of Kobe beef and kinky sex. Gerald and Jessie had spiced up their sex life by experimenting with S&M, but this time they're playing with real metal handcuffs. Jessie starts to have second thoughts right before Gerald dies of a Viagra-induced heart attack. As a stray dog starts to eat Gerald's body, Jessie is trapped on that bed, forced to have an uncomfortable inner dialogue. Her weak, pessimistic side is personified by Gerald, always putting her down. But her determined side is a vision of Jessie herself. And she's also seeing a strange, gaunt giant. Gerald calls him the Moonlight Man, saying he is death coming for her. During her memories, Jessie comes to terms with how her father, played by Henry Thomas, molested her when she was an adolescent. Through this repressed memory, Jessie starts to realize her relationship with Gerald was unhealthy due to Jessie's PTSD. Finally, Jessie takes the extreme measure of breaking a glass and slitting her own wrist. The blood lubricates her hand until it can be pulled from the handcuff. Freeing her other hand, she tries to get out of the house before she bleeds to death, but the Moonlight Man is there. She gives him her wedding ring and leaves, driving Gerald's car for help. Six months later, the Moonlight Man is caught. He's a real person, he's a murderer, and a necrophiliac. Jesse goes to confront the Moonlight Man at his arraignment and walks out a stronger woman as credits roll. So you said S&M was having a moment back then. Repressed memories of assault. That is a huge topic from the early 90s. Roseanne started saying on Larry King that she was having repressed memories come up of her parents abusing her. Yeah, there was scandals with daycare centers where, you know, psychologists were accused of planning ideas, repressed memories into children and, and, you know, these daycare teachers getting fired and accused of these horrible crimes. Yeah, I really attribute a lot of that to just women in general having more power, more control in the media. Like, rape just became something that was discussed, whereas before it was, you know, a salacious plot detail in a Death Wish movie. Now it's a woman's story, and it deserves to be heard. You know, Anita Hill around that same time. Yeah, it's interesting to me how much the book and this movie still remain relevant through the Me Too movement. When you're talking about reasons to make this movie, tapping into the Me Too energy could be a very big part of that. Although this was on the cusp of that. I don't think that Weinstein had quite happened yet. And I thought it was going to be a whole lot kinkier. That's definitely one thing that's kind of a surprise when we get going here. We hear Sam Cooke, because of course... When I get tied up and whipped, I definitely want it to be the oldies from Motown. <laughs> you got to have industrial music playing. Come on, not oldies. <laughs> I guess this is Stephen King's fantasy. We know this about him. I'm surprised, yeah, Gerald isn't wearing a leather jacket and putting some heavy palmade in his hair to grease it back. <laughs> but yeah, the fantasy is the, to do it with the greasers that have always tormented him. Yeah. In the book, it kind of is. They talk about his hair slicked back in a widow's peak and he's balding. I'm like... It could be an aged greaser. I'm sure it was. 
But yeah, we see a couple packing. They seem pretty anonymous, wholesome even. And then you see those handcuffs go in the overnight bag. The handcuffs in the bag, man. First of all, I got to give them credit for how they lit that scene because those things glint, assuming that wasn't CGI after the fact. But second of all, the way they're in there, just so symmetrical and just perfectly overlapping. I'm like, that's a bag. They're just going to get jostled around. Why don't you just throw them in there? Why are you putting in there like a gun in a gun case? But obviously I know why this is going to be the weapon of the movie. And so we're going to start not with the people who are fading in and out. We're just seeing the top of their heads. We start with the handcuffs. Yeah, I I had similar thoughts, Arnie, when I saw how carefully he placed those and how well they were framed. But I never read this book, never seen this movie before watching it for this review. I knew it was about, you know, a woman getting handcuffed, though. Like, it feels like that is almost like the stars, the handcuffs. So you got to show them off and really put them on display at the beginning. Yeah, they'll talk about it at the end that this is a woman that will come to identify that she's been shackled her whole life in heavy metaphor. And so, <laughs> yes, that what should just be a game, what we're told by the title is just kinky role play, is in fact the story of someone breaking free of a life of uh, abuse. But we have no way of knowing that early on. It's going to be drawn out throughout the movie. At the beginning, this does seem like a romantic retreat. They're off on the two-lane blacktop in a very expensive red car. There's not even any stress. I thought for sure we were going to see that these married people were having some kind of fractious moment when they come across a stray dog eating roadkill and Jesse, the wife, seems to want to check the dog for a collar and Gerald, the husband's like, no, I'm just going to keep on going to the cabin and we're going to fuck. And so I'm like, okay, well, this is going to be a moment of strife. She's going to be an animal lover and he's not going to care about animals. No, she's fine with that, leaving the dog behind. She puts that behind her pretty quick. Yeah, I thought there was going to be a lot more setup. I feel like they get to the gist of this plot pretty quickly. I thought, okay, we're going to see what the relationship is like. And then as she's trying to escape, that's all going to get worked out in her head. No, we'll see a glimpse. I mean, you could tell the difference between this couple with how they treat this stray dog. Jess wants to give it, you know, $200 Kobe ribeye. I guess she doesn't even know what that is. As soon as she, like, unfolded, I'm like, oh, that marbled fat, that's some good Kobe beef. (laughs) Like, don't give that to the dog. That's some good stuff. So you get a little bit about their characters, but I feel like the film is going to spend, you know, with with the different versions of herself and her husband coming in and out as she's chained up. That's when you're going to really learn about who these people are. There is kind of a delicious irony to a man seeing the dog that will later eat him and, like, be disgusted by the roadkill. He doesn't yet realize that he's this dog's <laughs> next meal. <laughs> yeah, just give him the Kobe beef and you you wouldn't get eaten. Just fill his tummy up with that stuff. It's kind of wicked and kind of a, a funny laugh and thinking about that he's just raw meat waiting to be devoured as well. And he's wanting to get to business right away. They don't even close the front door. He's whisking her inside because he just popped a blue pill. He's mentioning this is the first time using real handcuffs. They'd used, I guess, some plastic ones that she could break out of if she pulled hard enough before. And now he's upping the game by bringing real handcuffs. The huge mistake of this entire movie. I see her as very much not wanting to be here. From even in the car ride, she is checked out. She is thinking of, you know, wandering off, looking at the lake. I mean, we don't, as you said, we don't have a lot of time to establish things. But it's clear that this couple has problems. They're not just trying to spice up their love life. They're about to call it quits. 
And I think that for her, she's wanted out of this. I sense her detachment in all scenes. Yeah, I always felt that there was marital problems, even before she put on the handcuffs. Yeah, she might have that nighty, but we'll, we'll find out. She's always going along with stuff that she doesn't necessarily want to do. And I feel that hesitance, even in these opening scenes. We're going to find out, yes, that is the case. They are having problems. Yeah, the first problem is they don't have a safe word. You got to do this stuff. You got to have a safe word. That's the whole thing with BDSM. I'm wondering if it's just because in 1992, few people had heard of a safe word. But yeah, I do think you're right. And it also doesn't seem like they're doing heavy duty role playing. It looks like he's tying her up so she can't use her hands. But you need a safe word. If someone cannot defend themselves, they can't walk away. You need a safe word. So it's consensual. The more you know. (laughs) Just a PSA for everyone out there. Yeah, he's not really well-defined. It might be Gerald's game, but we don't know why he wants to play it. This will be a story about Jesse and why she doesn't want to play it, but I'll never know exactly what he hoped to get out of this, other than he has a moment in the mirror where he looks at himself, he tries to, you know, he's getting older, you know, they're post-50, you know, he's trying to save this marriage. He hasn't had sex with her in a long time, later imply that he might even be having an affair so this is his maybe last ditch effort to try and see if he still wants to be in this relationship i did all the math yeah he, uh, he's a little over 50 but she would be 47 in this scenario as depicted in the movie with the eclipse and everything and he is in much better shape bruce greenwood the actor is fit I mean, I guess if I'm going to be filmed the entire movie in my underwear, I would hit the gym too. But I definitely feel like in the book, part of the reason why the character has a cardiac arrest is because he's let himself go and he hasn't, part of the reason why he hasn't been sexual is he's just been feeding his face and sitting on the couch and not being a romantic. Yeah, I was a little disappointed with how Gerald ends up dying because, yeah, he is in really good shape. I'm like, oh, maybe it was the Viagra that he took. I, you know, if you have a boner for over four hours, you're supposed to go to the hospital. Who knows what's going on? But Well, that's to save your dick from necrotic flesh. <laughs> that's not to stop a heart attack. Yeah, no, I, I just I figured he had some reaction to the pill because he's in such good shape. I, I don't know why else he would drop dead. See, I thought the same thing is maybe he had an undiagnosed heart condition. And, you know, a lot of people get viagra illegally i don't i you know i hear about canadian pharmacies and things i thought maybe he had gotten the viagra illicitly but they give us a close-up no this is prescribed by a doctor so that's a shit doctor that doesn't notice he has a heart condition that viagra is going to exacerbate and kill him i don't think doctors really go into depth when they're going to write you a prescription for viagra i think they just write it no this is the movie's answer for why he dies he took a pill In the book, what it is is she says no, and he decides he's just going to pretend it's part of the game and he's going to rape her. And so she kicks him in the stomach, kicks him in the balls, and he has a heart attack from that. And you feel justified. You feel a moment of victory in the early part of that book because she stopped her husband, a rapist, but then you realize the cost she paid. Here, when Bruce Greenwood knocks off, It's kind of like, well, he was a jerk. They were having a marital spat, but, you know, I kind of feel bad that the guy just died. Yeah, I'm shocked to hear that she, like, fought back in the book because it seems like the only time she really stands up for herself in this situation is he's like, call me daddy. And she's like, no, I don't like that word. Stop it. And, you know, we'll find out why she has that issue throughout the film. But, like, yeah, there is no abuse or anything like that. He considers it for a moment. 
he has one moment where he says, what if I don't uncuff you? Like, just for a second, he teases the idea of turning it into a rape. And then we see that, no, he is, in the end, a disgruntled yuppie who is angry about losing virility. Do you think they made that choice so that we just don't hate seeing Bruce Greenwood on screen the rest of the movie? I mean, he only gets the worst in this film if we're to believe what's going on in Jess's head, that he actually said and did these things that are going to come out. So I, I don't feel like I ever like him. I would say that if I felt like she was trapped in a physically abusive relationship, and that's probably what I would conclude if he was so monstrous, it would change the way that I saw her life. And I feel like instead, by making him sort of like a nice guy that has a dark fantasy, he isn't necessarily a tormentor. She just has sought a daddy figure because of what she's gone through. It teases the mystery a little bit longer. You know, King has a tendency to draw really broad caricatures, and I appreciate that this couple feels a little bit more real. Not to say that abusive husbands aren't real, but just that if he, if my only scene to understand him was him chaining her up and screaming and sexually assaulting her, I wouldn't be willing to analyze their relationship the way the movie's going to ask me to. But it's exactly that in the book. You know, the book opens with the handcuffs being closed, and it immediately goes into that rape stuff, and it's just made me think a lot about why would you change that aspect of it because i do think a good kick in the groin is a much more realistic reason for a middle-aged slash old person to die i haven't read that book so i i don't know where it goes there for me coming into this if you show jess you know she's willing to fight back right from the beginning i, I don't know if i'd see her as this person that has been a victim her whole life like we'll see like this event that happened to her when she was like 12 is going to affect the rest of her life and has made her timid and submissive and so if i see her fighting back i don't know it, it kind of just works against that image that we're supposed to start out with when we meet Jess. This movie will spend a lot of time with the ambiguity of a wife asking herself, is my husband a bad guy? And, you know, when he returns to her as a figment of her imagination, he he reminds her of a joke that he told in front of a client about a woman being a life support system for a cunt, you know, like, is that who he was? I think by having it be more ambiguous in this role-playing scenario, I mean, obviously the guy would have been horrible. She would have needed to spend all of this time in her head debating her marriage if he had been that person in the opening scene. That's why you make him more of a nice guy. And yeah, I think it's okay to feel bad for him. I kind of feel bad for him. I mean, he's going to get his face eaten by a dog, or is he? I guess it could be this giant that's going to be hanging out there. But, like, we do see that dog walk in and start nibbling on his, like, leg <laughs> or arm soon after he dies. And that's horrifying. Like, having to be in that room, listening to the dog eating your your husband, however you felt about him, that's still got to be horrifying. I love the moment of the dog just ripping the first piece of flesh off the arm. And she yells at the dog, and the dog just goes to the door and is like a good dog chewing on a bone, just chewing on that flesh, pulling what he can off the skin. Kind of like the husband's sexual habits. It's not like it's so predatory. It was just like, hmm, let me try this. Let me see if this works. And so this dog is still kind of cute <laughs> in a certain way. <laughs> I mean, she will jokingly say, I don't suppose you're one of those rescue dogs. Like, I mean, there's something, the dog is not rabbit. It's not uh, Cujo. And we have some understanding. 
understanding that it's starving. It got a taste for Kobe beef. And hey, I mean, the guy's bleeding. It's, he clearly identifies the husband as meat and not a living being. So have at it. Why not? He's used to being a vulture who eats on dead things that he finds, so that wasn't a hunter dog. Yeah, I definitely thought of Cujo, and I thought, again, I I knew this was about a woman who gets chained to a bed and and the husband dies and she's got to figure a way out. That's all I knew about this story. Like, when the dog walks in, I'm like, oh, are we just going to have, like, rabid animals coming in and burglars coming? Like, like, where is this going? Like, what what is the trap that she has to get out of? Because they seem like they start escalating it in the film, and then it's mostly about her just trying to get some water. (laughs) Let me just ask this. So, yes, this is a movie where for the rest of this act two, she's in that bed. She'll have an out-of-body experience where her husband comes alive, but then she'll look on the floor and his body is still there. We're never confused by her hallucinations. We know that she's just having internal thoughts about her chances for survival yeah i did think when gerald first popped up i'm like oh maybe he just passed out for a few hours you know he's still gonna have that wound from the dog and but he was still alive and he was gonna be tormenting her and yes but they show the body still there very quickly you know this is just a hallucination or just in her head and i think it's because they're trying to keep this about a woman overcoming scenarios you know getting out of bed and dealing with past trauma you know, they're trying to make this more dramatic and less horrific. It's not going to be Jacob's Ladder here. No, it's 127 hours. James Franco, his arm is stuck, and he's going to reflect on his life and get bits of information and inspiration from things that have happened to him. His memories will teach him what he needs to do to stay alive. So that, yes, when they need the water, the way that I like it is that it's it's tied in with the flashbacks. She realizes she sees a a stronger free version of herself emerge and tell her we're glad he took that Viagra and she eventually realizes oh why because it meant that he was thirsty and put a glass of water on the bookshelf and so in reflecting on what's happening to her I don't know what else you could do in a movie but you would need these spirits these visions these other selves to be able to point things out so that it doesn't feel like a one-person show, but multi-characters, a psychodrama. It's very much like the end of Secret Window, Secret Garden with Johnny Depp all over the place. Better than that. A little, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) It is literally adapting the book because in the book, you know, they talk about how people with repressed memories and history of abuse can develop multiple personality disorder. Well, she doesn't have different personalities that she switches between, but she has different personalities in her head that are warring and reminding her of things. Here, they bring that down to just two voices and then literally personify them. One is masculine and talking down to her and keeping her weak. And one is feminine herself trying to be stronger, trying to be smarter. I mean, to me, it makes sense that it's her and Gerald, like this husband and wife are still fighting even after he's dead. Were there more voices or or more hallucinations in the novel? Yes. There was like a college friend and just other moments. You know, she had a life in between being a child and being this married woman. And you did explore a little bit more about that in the novel. 
I like that it was just these two and that we see this marriage continue to play out, even though we killed the husband off. Like, how do we still see this marriage get resolved? Oh, it's going to be in her head. So I, I like that conceit. I'm, I'm kind of glad we didn't get a bunch of people throughout her life walking in. The thing is, and they acknowledge this in the movie, she is an unreliable narrator. So as she works through her marriage problems with her husband, it's all from her head. It's all from, you know, what she saw and coming to terms with what she saw and really not his point of view. I was surprised she even knew the start of the joke because he said, you never heard the start of the joke. You only heard the punchline. I'm like, so how will we not hear the start of the joke? But she knew that. I just wish that we had a director that was a little bit more comfortable not holding our hand. Like, I feel like he is so worried about clarifying and making it easy to understand what's going on that I think he's missing the thing that made the book so great, which was that ambiguity, was the terror of, I don't know where we are right now. You get little hints of that, like imaginary Gerald is like, the the gardeners are gone, I told the maids not to come, like, you, you do get some ideas like that, but it's just lip service, and I wish I felt that terror more, that she was totally alone. I have a problem with this movie, though, because they did modernize it, and one thing, her, she's handcuffed, but sitting a few feet from her is a recent model iPhone. Yeah, she could touch it with her toes, but she can't, like, bring it towards her. But couldn't she say, hey, Siri? I mean, really, it's that easy. Well, I don't know in 20, if he has that turned on. I don't have that turned on because I hate Siri. <laughs> yeah, I don't keep that on. Uh, well, they never mention it. They don't approach it. The only thing they say is, Gerald says, the battery's not going to last long because I didn't charge it. But the battery's working now, and I'm like, wait a second. This is very easy to get out of in the 21st century, at least in the 2010s and beyond, because there are voice assistants everywhere who will do this for you. I'm perfectly accepting that she's in this bad situation. I never feel like, oh, stop crying. You can't get out of this. Well, I'm willing to go with it because we got to write cell phones out of everything now because they just make movies and stories like too easy. Like things could get resolved super fast. The fact, though, that he seems like the super busy businessman, like you keep that phone charged. You want the thing dying. You, you got important emails coming in and he's got a charger in the car or something like just plug it in once you get free. This phone is a non-issue because she couldn't really reach it. I mean, I don't see that. But even when she can reach it, she doesn't use it. Voice assistant. Arnie, it may surprise you, I never use that. And I have to touch my phone in order to use that. Yeah, I, I agree with you there, Stuart. I hate voice assistants. But in this day and age, I can think of times where I got stuck. I can think of a time where I left my phone in a cab in a foreign country and didn't know where I was. I can think about times when I'm like, I have to figure things out. And you want to tap into that. I think that probably there's a whole generation that is very comforted by the fact that there are series and internets to guide them on things. The fun of a movie like this is that it can show them the horror of the world that doesn't have it. So I feel like taking the phone out is, is perfectly fine. My issue is I don't feel like the horror goes deep enough. The only thing we have is the idea that maybe or maybe not there is a spirit or predator sneaking in, a, a real person or a figment of her imagination comes when the sun goes down and maybe is going to do something terrible to her. I haven't read the, like most Stephen King novels, but he has one called Bag of Bones, right? And we're going to see a Bag of Bones. Is this a reoccurring character? 
No, but it is interesting how some phrases from books come back as titles later. In some books, he talks about full dark, no stars. Then he writes a book called Full Dark, No Stars. So so just an idea he had at the time. Moonlight Man is how it's billed in this credits, and it's played by the giant from Twin Peaks, and I guess Lurch from the Addams Family movies. <laughs> yeah. Gerald does reference him as death, though. Yes, and I do think it kind of works... I like the idea that it might never get explained. I think this movie will go too far in articulating that he is real. Absolutely, Stuart. As soon as that ending comes, I don't like it. Fine. It's an imaginary thing in her head. She's got a distrust for men. We're going to find out why. Keep it at that. We can even have later that she reads in the news that there was a man sneaking into homes and stealing their possessions. Yeah. So maybe that was him. But ambiguity, right? Like... Why solve it for everyone? We see a bloody footprint, but we're not sure if it's really a footprint. Like, yeah, you could have played with that. I think that part of this is the director talked in some interviews at the time about wanting Stephen King's approval. And, you know, one of the things that gets King's approval is not changing what he did. You can tell I'm never for that thinking. I am never, even in good books, I feel like you change things. But you're asking why not do something because it's not how it was in the book. The book ended with confronting the Moonlight Man. And so the movie's going to end with confronting the Moonlight Man. Does that work in the book? No, no. I have the same issues in the book as I do. I mean, King, his endings always stink, right? I mean, always. Even in the good stories, there are always codas and epilogues that you wish that you hadn't read. A hundred pages in it after the clown has gone down. Yeah, I agree. Gerald's Game has one of the better climaxes, but it then continues a little bit long, especially explaining away the Moonlight Man. But I am actually okay that they're keeping it somewhat grounded, somewhat basic, because it is an internal monologue, and they're trying to make a mass appeal movie here. It's going to be about 40 minutes before we're going to get a flashback and leave the setting of the bedroom so let's go with this it's been teased for a little while like we did have the gerald vision say he put those handcuffs on you before i ever did and we do have like him call her mouse so we've had little indications that she has a backstory that needs to be articulated but you're right it doesn't come until about halfway into this movie where she falls asleep and her dream becomes the explanation for her condition I mean besides the moonlight man this is the other thing that I thought was kind of silly not knowing how it works in the, the novel is when we flash back to her childhood this whole solar eclipse thing like why is it because that's the day the sunshine went out of her life because what happened to her like it seems like a very dramatic act this is the moment where it ties in with dolores claiborne oh okay i guess we'll have to wait to that movie so i can see how it all works together and i don't think that they tie them together because the movies were made by different studios but if you're reading the books (laughs) the eclipse does matter in that way i'm sure you'll explain it when we get to that movie (laughs) i do think it's also a bit metaphorical dark things happen in both books when the sun goes away and here The dark thing happens by the little kid from E.T. It's Henry Thomas all grown up and molesting his daughter. Yeah, but I mean, Mike Flanagan's used him a lot. He is in House on Haunted Hill and the recent Bly Manor. Yes, exactly. He got the Nicholson part in Doctor Sleep. And so uh, clearly Mike Flanagan doesn't just see him as an E.T. reference, even though I think this childhood that she's having is the 80s, right? This cabin that she's gone to. 
It's got to be, right? I looked it up, and if you want to try to make this actually link with a year and everything, it looks like it's June 1983, which would make her 12. 83. Yeah, that's what it felt like. What I really like about this flashback, and it's what I wanted more from this movie, is it doesn't feel quite real. It is a dream, and there's something about it with the darkness of the solar eclipse crossing the sky and everything going that artificial red. You know, everything is, like, stylized like Creepshow or something, like an EC comic book. And so it does have this dreamy quality to it. I think that's very effective. Yeah, remember the best part of Doctor Sleep when, like, they float into that room and they're going through the memories and it's all fight. Like, that's the one really cool scene. And mm-hmm. yeah. I feel like Flanagan, he, he does have a flair for that. We just got to get him a film where he can really excel and, and show that off. I agree. I think this scene works very well. I think the little girl actress here is really giving a good performance. I don't know this actress from anything else, but I buy her connection with her father and i buy henry thomas as being creepy and feeling her out when he's like well i guess you're too old to sit on my lap these days the scene is effective and maybe it's made all the more effective because we finally left the bedroom (laughs) it could just be we're really happy with new people and new places The scene that really works for me when we flash back to her childhood is after the molestation takes place and the dad goes in there and is like, you know, maybe we should just tell mom and and get our punishment over with. Like, it's so manipulative. And it also explains, like, why Jess just holds all these secrets in. I'm like, okay, now I'm starting to understand her character more and more. But it's also just such a creepy scene because this is what molesters do. They so manipulate their victims. And I thought it really captured the horror of that. Not only that, but it's happening in a summer cabin, much like the place that she's in. It is not the same location. This isn't been kept in the family. This is not her cabin where her dad molested her. But we start to have that blended feeling that she did never leave that cabin in 1983. And that, yes, being chained to her husband has kept her in that moment. They tease it out over, you know, she wakes up and she comes in and out of consciousness. But more or less, they do pretty much sort of outline pretty clear cut, I feel like. Again, without the subtlety that I might have wished for, uh, we do pretty much understand that all of her issues with uh, role playing with a daddy figure is that her father molested her and did or did not penetrate her. There may have been only self-gratification in her presence. And in the book, it's made pretty clear that it was just self-gratification. I guess there was a groping, but there was no penetration. In the movie, it's a little bit more obscured, but I took it as self-gratification. Yeah, I was surprised when they said it was just self-gratification because it plays different the way they stage it. With her sitting on the lap and no, daddy, no, like, yeah, it comes off differently. But he's also moving a hand up and down behind her, so you can read it easily that way. The thing that got me is that we're told it's a one-time instance, which... It never is. I've never had any personal interaction with molestation, including not knowing anybody who I know was molested. But what I hear the stories of in the news and things are, you know, it's repetition. Once, you know, you start, you wouldn't stop after one. But it appears in this case he did. Yeah, it's sort of just cleanly demonstrating that she's trapped in this one moment in her life. And yes, whatever else she might have experienced sort of gets uh, eclipsed. Pun intended. But it's... 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, and now she's got to get free. So that night after the mother and the other siblings came back from watching the solar eclipse from the lake, they took a boat out. They're gathered around the dinner table and little mouse can't tell her. But uh, I mean, again, tells her in her own way by crushing that glass in her hand. That will be the memory that gives her the idea about how she can also get free of these binds. Is that too literal? I mean, I really do love a good metaphor. And I really do appreciate that King is looking like a writer again. Because after Sleepwalkers, he really looked like someone that had no understanding of the narrative form. And now I can say, oh, this definitely feels like a college short story creative writing exercise. I can see the metaphors. It's not masterful, but it definitely lets you know the psychological makeup of the characters. And that has been something that has been sorely lacking in so many King works. I agree. It it doesn't come off as sophisticated, but it works for mass audiences in that kind of way. So yeah, the fact that she remembers breaking this glass as a child and now she's going to break a glass again to free herself from all this trauma. Okay, I'll go with it. It's not high art, but it's better than what we've seen from a lot of these adaptations. I was just left disappointed because fantasy her, the strong her is like, remember what happened after. Remember what happened after. And I'm like, okay, we're going to further psychologically deconstruct Jess here. We're going to learn even more about her character. What happened after? Like I said, did he do it again? Did it happen to the sister? Instead, it's just what happened after is you broke a glass and hey, you can do that again because you read somewhere that blood is slippery. And, you know, this movie has had its rube goldberg macgyver moments the tag that she forgot to take off of her slip is able to be turned into a straw so she can get some sips of water and she's able to lift her hands just high enough to tilt a shelf to get the water i don't understand why before breaking the glass she doesn't finish the water because you know in case this doesn't work you don't want to dehydrate her lips are looking pretty parched she had to use paper for a straw and coming from california where those are now mandated paper straws are awful you (laughs) you use them once and that's it she can't get any more water from that straw (laughs) and this moment i'm sorry but like eesh when the skin is coming off of her hand like a glove and she's pulling it through I turned away from the screen. I will admit it. I, yeah. I squirmed in my seat. I really did. I felt like looking away because this is realistic looking practical effects here. And the cutting of the wrist, I was fine with. But yeah, when they start to de-sleeve the hand, that's what it's called. It actually really happens. Is that why she cut the wrist so the skin can start peeling off? Because I'm like, oh, she's just going to kill herself. What is going on? Because what I've learned from movies, when you're handcuffed, you got to break that thumb and then you can squeeze your hand out. And I kept yelling at her to break her thumb so she could do that. But then she started cutting her wrist. I'm like, what is going on? But then I'm like, oh, she's like making a seam so the skin could like her hand could come out through the skin that's not the intent what they talk about is the blood is a lubricant and maybe she'll be able to slide her hand out with the help of lubrication but what actually happens is it's so tight it rips the skin and it starts to come off like a glove and oh boy does that just make me wince and you know she does other things after that she runs for water i'm like i'd be running for bandages yes (laughs) i mean this looks better than hellraiser skin removal from the arm there i'm guessing they maybe use some cgi to touch up some practical and make it look worse, but my God, this is horrific. 
Yeah, we've finally gotten back into the horror element. I feel like we took a lot of time off from that. Not to say that sexual assault is not horrific, but horrific in a different way. And now I feel like we're back in a thriller scenario because, yeah, she's, you know, bleeding profusely. Yeah, she's free now, but, like, she'll faint. She wakes up with a dog trying to eat her bloody appendage. Like, lean further away from the metaphor and just lean in towards the adrenaline and the thrills because this story could easily and sometimes does feel stagnant. I watched this twice And it doesn't have a whole lot of repeat value because once you know what's going to happen, it is kind of just stuck in one place. And I was shocked how much it does follow the book because if you've read the book, like I reread it for this, it's like, okay, it is very faithful adaptation. Yeah, and again, what I would argue as someone that loved the book, I would say you cannot honor a good book by being literal with what happens in it. You have to change. You have to adapt. A great book is great exactly because it is words on a page and cannot be filmed like a screenplay. Well, here, yeah, she gets the one hand off. She has to use that hand to get the keys off of the bathroom counter. And I'm still wincing because that hand is not going to work there, honey. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm so happy later when she talks about skin grass. It didn't occur to me. I thought she really was ruined. I thought she would be an amputee, like hook handed or something. Yeah, I was shocked that they were able to do skin grafts for that because it, it feels like that skin has been peeled off. And when she gets out, she looks at Gerald, who's still laying there. Like, has his face been eaten? We see a lot more, like, yes. what I'm assuming at this point in the film are more dog bites. But I think it's the Moonlight Man we're going to find out who's mutilating him. We're told that he mutilated male corpses. That's true. And what got me was the buzzing of flies, letting me know exactly how dead Gerald had gotten. Yeah, he's also decomposing. So, like, for lots of reasons, he doesn't look his youthful, vibrant, ready-for-sex self that he did at the beginning of the movie. But the Moonlight Man is there, and I gotta say, in this lighting, the makeup they used on that actor, again, uh, you mentioned Adam's family, he was also a big part of Star Trek The Next Generation, I mean, this guy's been in a lot. Yeah, whenever you need a giant, you would call him. Which is of Eastwick. So I think the makeup they used on him is very effective in this lighting. He doesn't look like himself. I don't recognize him and feel a familiar presence like the friendly giant from Twin Peaks. And yeah, he's got this box of bones and jewelry and she's going to throw her wedding ring in there. Again, strong metaphor. I'm, you know, giving up my marriage in order to save myself. Yeah, I wish the Moonlight Man was a metaphor because she's not even sure. In the first instance we get that maybe he's real, you know, we get this narration at the end. She talks about how her wedding ring was never found in the premises once the cops showed up. Yeah. I mean, you could do a large part of what is here. She, you know, drives away in the sports car. She sees her husband one more time and she hits a tree, gets rescued and then plays ignorant, says, oh, I have amnesia. Doesn't want to tell people, wouldn't know how to tell people her story. And I think that you could leave it there if this movie didn't suddenly feel the self-importance of wanting to be able to encourage women and survivors of sexual assault to tell their story. Suddenly, it becomes a message movie when I'm not sure it's really well served by what came before. I more or less agree with you, Stuart. If the film wants to go that message route, okay, again, have her opening up some nonprofit to help these women. The fact that she's going to stroll into court, look, she would have had to been arrested after this for contempt. Like, go in there and tell off this giant. <laughs> Ugh, I don't like any of it. 
Oh, it is so bad when literalized like this. It is. And the fact that she's writing a letter to herself. You know what I thought would have been a nice change from the book? is because we don't know much about her father and things, right? So we saw Henry Thomas. Wouldn't it be nice if, like, she was writing a letter to her dad who she had put in jail? Like, she came out and talked about it and had him arrested. Instead of she's writing a letter to her child self and starting a center for women and confronting the giant whose makeup looks awful in the courthouse. I mean... (laughs) Yeah, it looks bad. When you were complimenting his makeup, I'm like, what are you talking about? Because that's all I could think of is that end courthouse scene. See, I had to call out how good it looked in the moonlight. Because once it's in the daylight, he looks like he's a marshmallow man, not a moonlight man. Yeah, you can see, like, the glue holding on the prosthetics (laughs) on his face. It's awful. I just think there could have been much better ways to handle this ending separate from the book because you didn't go into as much detail with the family as you had before. But, yes, it turns out this moonlight man, he only kills and molests men. So that was what saved her, is he didn't do that to women. But he moved on to live people, perhaps because he almost had this one, and that's how he got caught. So what does it mean to tell him he looks small and pridefully tell him off if if he's not an assaulter of women? Like... Yeah, he he didn't victimize her. I guess he could have helped her. He could have, you know, been more altruistic, but he didn't take advantage of her. Don't you see, Stuart? I mean, you see her father's face in his face, and then you see her husband's face in his face. They literally put those actors there. Well, when you have a monstrosity like this, I see no one's face but the bad prosthetics they're using. Yeah, again, this is the kind of thing that on the page, with the ambiguity, you could say that, yes, all of those things were assaulting her when she was in the bed. But when you got to film it and literalize it, yeah, you get into some real problems. And I do think that there's just way too much overexplained in this finale. We should never know for sure that he was there. Yeah, I mean, they could have a Moonlight Man sequel if they didn't explain it. I mean, just thinking pure crass movie thinking of horror franchises. Or just, again, she goes to the court and looks at him and is not sure. Again, what's wrong with ambiguity? Like, it's how most people live their lives. That's why we want our movies tidied up in a nice, neat bow. If we wanted real life, we'd go out and live it. (laughs) I've heard that argument said, by the way. Yeah, no, there are people that like escapist entertainment, and I definitely enjoy that every once in a while. Like, that's what you need sometimes. But I feel like this story, this is not an escapist entertainment. Like, you're dealing with child molestation, abusive marriage. Like, you want to get at some real stuff here. But you're ending with total empowerment, where all of this no longer holds her back. She has vanquished all of it in the span of 90 minutes, which you know, does take away from some of the realism of the serious topics. And, you know, just the sense of the believability and the horror of it. I mean, there are people that have done this and they're they're not wanting to turn it into an after-school special. And this this becomes dangerously close to feeling pat and reductive. But is the movie, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend playing Gerald's Game? Jacob, 
I was really up for this movie because I knew what the concept was. And let me talk about my pet squirrel for a second because, like, this kind of thing has been on my mind. Back in September, my wife rescued a baby squirrel and brought it home. And we've been raising it, taking care of it. We keep it in a cage because those things will eat everything. They'll eat your walls, eat your wires, everything. And so he's got to be kept in a cage. And with COVID going around, I look... We all need probably mental health help during these trying times. But like, I always have this. I'm like, what if we all die of COVID and this poor squirrel is caught in this cage? Like, will he be able to escape and continue his life? Like something I worried about. And then I told my wife this. She's like, I've had the same worries. But, like, that squirrel, he knows how to get out of that cage. I've had to upgrade his cage. Like, I've had to do so much. Like, I wouldn't worry about, yeah, squirrels being able to chew out of cages. Yeah, th- that thing is so smart. He's learned how to bend bars. And, like, he's escaped a few times. Like, I've had to buy chicken wire to, like, reinforce the cage. Like, he's too good at escaping. So that's a great concept. Like, something that w- has been on my mind just because of this little pet. And, like, you know, that that's just something. Like, how do you get out of the situation when there's no one there to help you? And I thought this was going to be more of a thriller. And the fact that it's mostly like, oh, I got to get this cup of water and then I'm just going to cut my hand open and and slide it out. That wasn't the most satisfying thing. I thought it was going to be a lot more about the mechanics of how she was going to escape and do all that. That's not what this film is. Like, it kind of surprised me because, again, another assumption early on, I'm like, oh, this is just about kinky sex bad. And this prudish woman's going to be the hero because she wasn't down for kinky sex. No, they go deeper. And that was at least satisfying that they... Especially for a Stephen King story, like trying to get into this kind of drama. I know he's flirted with stuff, but he's always bringing monsters and and just weird stuff in there where it doesn't feel like he's seriously trying to explore some of these more horrific types of things that happen in life. And so I, I like that we got all this back and forth between the husband and wife as she really explores what her relationship was like, what her childhood was like, how that had an effect on her as an adult. Like these are all great themes. I don't think it's pieced together the best way. Like we've talked about it. It could have been constructed a little bit better. I, I agree with you, Stuart. Put more ambiguity in there. This this is someone when trying to work very complex things out in their head while they're handcuffed to a bed. Like it doesn't need to be so clean cut. And when the moonlight man shows up and the fact that he ends up being real in this court scene, like that part is just garbage. Just just cut that ending. Stop before you get there. It's awful. But I was really surprised by this because I'm usually very critical of King and and seeing him trying to take on a more delicate material more in a more mature manner, I actually appreciate it. And I got into this film qu- quite a few times, even though it has flaws and it's not perfect, but I could still definitely recommend this one. I, I think it's worth your time. Stuart. Yeah, I was really hoping, after liking the book so much, uh, that this was going to be one of my favorite King adaptations, because I like this director and these actors, we haven't really talked about them, but they're solid. Like all, all of the elements are in play for this to really work. And we're in a time now where, yeah, on Netflix, they can show whatever graphically they need to show. Unfortunately, the director is determined to show too much because he's so determined to send that message of female empowerment that he really just over-articulates and just makes all the metaphors so plain, so obvious, so unadorned with mystery that it just kind of deflates the tension. And I don't think you want to lose that. I do think that part of this story was a post-modern, what are we really experiencing exploration of self. And I think that, yeah, it's a really reductive look at the book. And there are directors that wouldn't have done this. You know, I think around the same time that Gerald's Game came out, Laura Palmer was finding out who killed her. And it's a very similar story of abuse. David Lynch 
would know how to parse out the oddity with the compassion. Maybe he's a little bit too much with the oddity and not enough of the compassion. But somewhere there's a balance. In between Laura Palmer's story and this Gerald's game, I do feel like there's a better version of being able to talk about the cycle of abuse that someone can experience while still making it a high-wire act of how do I escape from a bed. Would you recommend the book then if you enjoyed this movie? Like, I enjoyed this movie, so would you recommend that I should read the book? Do you think that would be a better experience? Yeah, it's a better book than a movie, and I don't usually feel that way. Again, I started this podcast by saying that Carrie the movie, Shining the movie, so many, Stand By Me is better than The Body. I feel so many times, yeah, you don't need to read those books. They're just the jumping off point for the better movies. And here, I definitely would say... There is no substitute for that book, but it's still a recommend. I still think that for whatever it loses by being so literal, it is still a competent one and done kind of thing. Don't watch it again. It doesn't have a lot of repeat entertainment value, but it was a competent and sometimes creepy adaptation of a good book. And I would kind of put it on the level of like the corny dramas that some people really love, like Shawshank Redemption and At Pupil. That's kind of where it kind of fits. Shots fired with <laughs> Shawshank once again. Oh, everyone knows I hate that movie, but kind <laughs> of have accepted it on its own corny terms. Well, Stuart, to your topic, you know, of the prestige television streaming items of 2017, Gerald's Game is far better than Twin Peaks Season 3. Yeah, too much ambiguity in that one. (laughs) Yeah, and not a story about abuse, or at least not abusing Laura Palmer. No, abusing its audience and trust. (laughs) Yeah, about how much Lynch hates its fans. Yeah, it definitely was very happy to withhold uh, entertainment. And like I said, I read this book when it came out, and when the movie came out in 2017, I lunged for the remote as did marjorie we both had read the book in the past and we were both like how do you make that a movie and now coming back for this review i was like how did they do that i like remembered nothing of this movie what i remembered was the book and before this review i'd reread the book and so i was again like how did they do this is it like Ryan Reynolds and Buried, is it just going to be a woman on a bed the whole time? Will they do the molestation plot? I'd forgotten everything about this movie, remembered everything about the book. So that means I completely agree with you. The book is a far superior experience than the movie. That said, the movie is okay. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not great. I think Flanagan does a decent job with filming a single person in a bed or a person with two ghosts going around them talking because he keeps the camera moving. He keeps things going that are visually interesting, even if it's Carla Gugino on a bed in a slip for most of the time there. It never feels like a play. No, and that's what I expected. You mentioned already, Jacob, that movie Locke we reviewed, and I gave that a recommend because I liked it as a one-man play type of thing. And I couldn't remember if that's what I was getting here. And quite quickly, I was a little bit disappointed that it goes the easier route, that it does reduce the number of personalities to two, a very easy, you know, angel on one shoulder, devil on the other shoulder type of thing. It does keep Bruce Greenwood in it. And that's I like Bruce Greenwood as an actor. So I'm glad for that. But it just seems 
like very simple but then they did put in the molestation story i was like all right i'm glad that they at least put that there because if they had reduced this just down to sex game gone bad thriller that would be a bastardization of the point of the book oh yeah and so i'm glad they kept that in but i can't not say that there are periods where it drags yeah because as you say Stuart, everything is so obvious that they're having conversations that i was five ten minutes ahead of even if i hadn't read the book mm -hmm. because i came into this movie it's a new experience i'm not entirely sure where they're keeping the same things going and it's like okay it's taking jesse a good five minutes to get where I've already been. And so it drags a little bit, but I do think it's probably a really solid adaptation of a difficult to adapt book. Yeah. And I can give it, yeah, I'll recommend. Yeah, I mean, there, there would have been lots of ways to screw it up. Boy, you mentioning that they just turn it into a sex game gone wrong and he's like a stalker or something or turns into a monster. Yeah, you're right. They could have really shot the bed and they didn't. They honored what they could about the book a little too much, I would add. But yeah, in doing so, they still made a good movie. It's, hey, it's a rare that a Stephen King movie gets three recommends. So I'm glad that we're kind of pausing with that record here but i always do try to bring in stephen king's recommend here and in this case he has gone on the record he recommends this film he emailed the director after the movie and the email was so glowing that flanagan printed it out and hung it in his room <laughs> i don't know if that's such a thing of honor i mean he gave Sleepwalkers a B plus, <laughs> And then King gave him Dr. Sleep to do, right? They did get Dr. Sleep out of this, which was something King was very finicky about how it would be made. So it got him another gig, too, which in Hollywood is perhaps more important than kudos from an author. Now, we've had, strangely, I didn't expect this. We've had a lot of requests. When are you going to get to Dolores Claiborne? When are you going to get to Dolores Claiborne? It will be next, but it won't be next week. we got to go back and do an old book again. Yeah, I, I, and you know what? I think that uh, it was another novel that I felt like had real potential that uh, was not well executed on ABC television and can be improved. I'm actually hopeful that by being CBS All Access, which means they stream it, they don't put it out on network television, we can finally get the Stan movie that we've been hoping for. More importantly, if you want to know what we think of it before we release the show next week, there is an opportunity for you to listen live. We're taping our thoughts this Thursday, we're going to be out there putting the show together. You're going to hear what it's like to hear all of us live try to talk about what's, God, 10 hours of television. Should be really long into the night, but hopefully fun. It's going to be at 9 p.m. Eastern that we're doing the show. And to hear that, you just have to be a patron of $75 or more on our patron campaign at nowplayingpatron.com. You know, at the $50 level, you get all of those bonus podcasts, but at $75, you're going to get to listen to a show live once a month. That's at 9 p.m. Eastern. And then if you're at $100 or more, you can actually join us at 8.30 p.m. Eastern for a 30-minute group chat where we can just talk movies, talk what you thought about The Stand, whatever. And you're going to have to do this by tomorrow, February 17th, because... RSVP is required so that we can send you the private information on how to talk with us and how to listen to the show live. And if you don't sign up by tomorrow, 
Well, we're going to be doing it again next month, and details will be coming. Meanwhile, also starting right now, is the beginning of our spring 2021 donation drive. Right now, you can donate, and the first show from this donation drive will come out this Friday. It's going to be White House Down. Right. Uh, It's part of our Platinum Level series. We're looking at four films that just coincidentally happen to be about people, terrorists attacking our capital and our American institutions. I don't know why we would discuss that right now, but just seemed like it was in the atmosphere. And so, yes, this is the one-off. Channing Tatum, Jamie Foxx this week, and in the weeks to follow, Gerard Butler is going to do it a few times. I think in London and, I don't know, somewhere else. Angel has fallen. Is that in heaven? Like, somebody assassinated Jesus? (laughs) It would be a better movie. (laughs) I don't know anything about any of these movies. Never seen a one of them. But that makes it all the more fun for me. So hopefully you can join. The spring donation drive, I think, is going to be a whole lot of fun. Our silver level, which is $10 or more, gets you five Dirty Harry podcasts. I know what you're thinking. Are there five Dirty Harry podcasts or are there six? Make our day. And we'll make yours with, yeah, the original 1971 Dirty Harry, Clint Eastwood, followed by Magnum Force, The Enforcer, Sudden Impact, and ending with The Deadpool. Not to be confused with Deadpool. Are we going to do The Deadpool too? Oh, wait, that was just Deadpool. I'm for one glad that Ryan Reynolds is not showing up, but Jim Carrey will be. What? Yeah, he's in it. This would be between Once Bitten and Earth Girls Are Easy? So, like, grown up, not as a kid, just, like, walking onto this set. Okay, interesting. (laughs) Then for our gold level, we are giving more shows than I think we've ever given at the gold level. We're doing two big retrospective series that kind of have a Venn diagram and meet at one point. First, we're doing the David Fincher thrillers movies. So this is all of the crime, noir, thriller films that... Fincher is mostly known for. It wouldn't include Alien 3, it wouldn't include Benjamin Button, but it does include Seven, The Game, Panic Room, Zodiac, and Gone Girl. And his remake of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Which becomes the second wing of this uh, retrospective, because he did make something that's part of a larger retrospective. We're going to throw that one in, too. It started as a Norwegian book series and TV movie series. We're going to cover those three films, then Fincher's version, and then also a recent sequel. I guess that's what they're calling Girl in the Spider's Web with the woman from The Crown. I've seen none of the Dragon Tattoos, but most of the Finchers, and I'm really looking forward to revisiting some films I haven't seen in a long time. And that's at gold level for $25 or more. And then as Stuart mentioned, the platinum level for $35 or more starts this Friday. White House Down, followed by the trilogy of Has Fallen movies. And I understand there's going to be a fourth Has Fallen. So if you donate to us with PayPal, you'll get that review whenever that movie comes out and we do it. And there's one retrospective series coming back, theoretically, Theaters will be open in July. There was a Super Bowl ad for a movie that fits into one of our old series. So we're going to have the M. Night Blue level donation because he has a new film 
that's old. <laughs> I was just about to make that pun. Yeah, the new old. Uh, yeah, I don't know what to make of it. I never do with M. Night. And if it's not good, which I think is at least a 50-50 chance, it's probably going to be funny bad. So if you donate at the M. Night Blue level, you get all of the new shows we've discussed, plus our M. Night Shalomon thrillers reviews that we did back in 2019. It basically is every film M. Night did except for his early religious films. Yeah, we don't want to do the one with uh, Rosie O'Donnell as the nun. It's so bad. Trust me. This includes The Sixth Sense, Signs, The Village, Lady in the Water, The Happening, The Last Airbender, After Earth, The Visit, Unbreakable, Split, Glass, and then this summer, Old. If Old misses its release date, you'll get that whenever we do it. With a donation of $55 or more, get the entire bundle of shows we are doing this spring. It's your support that allows us to do the shows we do every single Tuesday, including Stephen King, including next week where we're going to watch a 10-hour miniseries and somehow distill that into one podcast. I know our podcasts often match the runtime of the movies. I don't think we're going to have a 10-hour show. <laughs> it better not be 10 hours long. All my... night, all night. Yeah, my wife's going to be very upset if that goes 10 hours. I will be the editor of that show. I will not appreciate it if it's 10 hours. But your support is what makes Now Playing possible. So if you want to help us out and you want to hear some bonus shows, head to nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. A donation made today gets you started with White House Down this Friday. And then next week, we will be back with The Stand. Until next time, close your eyes and count to ten. And when you open your eyes again, we will be gone. Gerald! Gerald! Look at me! Wake up, Gerald! 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 Say something! Please! Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You want something else? Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Arnie's reviews and analysis of Stephen King's original novels. You never walked away from that. And also come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review. You just keep watching. In the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find many more reviews of Stephen King films, including Sometimes They Come Back, The Lawnmower Man, Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Children of the Corn, and more. This is going to be good for us, Jess. Really good. In our archives are also reviews of film series such as The Avengers, Star Trek, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Scream, Transformers, and RoboCop. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. Once you start this, you're not going to be able to stop. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. It's $200 a portion, you know. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. You know, I've never been able to refuse you anything that you really wanted, have I? 
You can also join the Now Playing Patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Plus, even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. Find the details on our website. And dogs gotta eat. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Wipe that absurd grin off your face and stop calling yourself fucking daddy! Associate produced by Jason. <sighs> That's a big responsibility. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. Well, I'm pretty sure you just lost your mind. Now Playing Credit narration by Brock. This low and conspiratorial and that very specific guys only fucking tone that says... You'll appreciate this, brother, but only you. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Was I just putting on a show? Or was that who I really was? Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. And we might die here today because of Gerald's five inches. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Don't recite facts to me. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Vinganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the expressed written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. I, yeah, no, I understand, but the only way we can move forward is if they accept the non-compete clause. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2021, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Can we please get back to work now? There was the Madonna sex book. You know, she published a whole covered in mylar. You had to, like, spend $50 to open it and see her in all her kinky fantasies. I bought that book, and it had vanilla ice full frontal, and he slept with Madonna while making it. This is all way beyond what I ever wanted to see of vanilla ice. Yeah. The stand is better than the body. I, I feel like so many times I go, yeah. Stand by me is better than the body. Yeah, I'm sorry, yeah. By being CBS All Access, which means they stream it, they don't put it out on network television. I just got noticed today they're renaming it Paramount Plus. Take that, Disney. Is that what you just do now? Like, are we going to get Netflix Plus? Amazon Prime Plus? MGM Minus? <laughs> HBO Max Plus? The last at the last ass bender. <laughs> it may as well be called that. It has nothing to do with the last airbender. Sure. <laughs> <laughs>